Hello, and welcome to Serial Killing, a podcast, where we also veer off the serial killer path to delve into other topics within our beloved true crime community. This week's podcast will be on George Hodel. Now, this guy has become very, very highly requested all of a sudden, so I thought I'd better get to it. George Hill Hodel was born on October 10th, 1907 in Los Angeles, California. So let's get into some history for that time. Interesting fun fact, there was a study done and in 1907, the life expectancy for an American was only 46 years for men and 50 years for women. This was the year that typhoid was ravishing the nation. The Chicago Cubs won the World Series this year, and industrial capitalism was on the rise, and with that, a lot of jobs. New businesses needed more clerical work, and so a new, quote, white-collar mentality began. More workers began earning a salary rather than an hourly wage. More women were working than ever before. Tuberculosis was a very real danger during this time, which killed hundreds of people each year. But the first electric washing machine was released for sale in 1907. In Rome, the first Montessori school and daycare center opened. In Kingston, Jamaica, a 6.5 magnitude earthquake hit, killing between 800 to 1,000 people. Charles Curtis from the U.S. state of Kansas became the first Native American U.S. Senator. The Mud March, which was the first large procession organized by the National Union of Women's Suffrage Societies, took place in London. And something super cool that I'm glad I found, the Diamond Sutra, a woodblock printed Buddhist scripture dated back to 868 AD, was discovered in some caves in China, and it was the earliest complete survival of a dated printed book. But as we already know, World War I was only a few more years ahead of us in the future. George's father was George Hodel Sr., born in Odessa, which was then in the Ukraine in February 1873, though some sources say April. George Sr.'s parents were Eli Goldgefter and Bertha Goldgefter. I found a man named Vladimir Goldgefter, who was born in Odessa in 1881, who belongs to a Jewish Gen Ukraine database. So this is most likely a very close relative or maybe a younger brother to George Sr. Then at that point, the name Goldgefter just dropped off. George apparently fled the Ukraine during the turn of the century, as some did, trying to get away from the, quote, Russification of the area. He was escaping the mandatory military conscription, and that's when he changed his last name from Goldgefter to Hodel. He went on to Paris, and while there, he met Esther Leov, who was a dentist. They married, 
they immigrated to the United States coming in through Ellis Island just like everyone else. They then traveled on to California. Esther was George's mother, of course, and she was born in Chargorod, which was then also in the Ukraine, in April of 1873. I couldn't find anything out about her childhood or how she wound up in Paris practicing dentistry, but clearly she was a strong-minded, willful, and intelligent woman who was rumored to, quote, wear the pants in that relationship, so to speak. George Sr. worked as an insurance salesman and was a highly respected member of the Los Angeles community. He was of Jewish ancestry and he was a smaller man, being five foot six inches tall, and he was described as having a slightly dark complexion. He was also described as being an introvert, very quiet and reserved. He must have either come from old family money or was a very successful insurance salesman because he provided a privileged life, though Esther might have continued to practice dentistry. I really couldn't find where it said either way. However, it is rumored that she was descended from French aristocracy and also of Roman Catholic descent. So you know, perhaps she brought considerable money into the marriage herself. Another somewhat frustrating aspect of the story is that I could not find out whether or not George had any siblings. I did find that he was their quote only son, but that doesn't tell me if he had any sisters. I believe he was an only child, but that's not gospel. So the couple settled in Pasadena and George was born. Now Pasadena was first a stop along the railway and the growth exploded. From the real estate boom of the late 1800s clear through the Great Depression, it quickly became a sort of, you know, winter resort for the very wealthy people from the eastern part of the country. This, of course, created a demand for business districts that brought on the construction of neighborhoods, which in turn created a high demand for new roads to make connections to Los Angeles. Even though you'd probably think Ukrainian or Russian would have been the language they spoke at home, it was actually French. George's parents were also big supporters of the arts in Los Angeles. They had a number of impressively influential friends from Europe and Russia. They treated their son to the best of the best, and it was stated in every source that George showed a tremendous intelligence from the very beginning. And while there's not much detailed information about his very early years, we know that before the age of 10, he was already considered a musical prodigy. Through his parents and their friends, the Sergei Rachmaninoff himself came to George's family home in Pasadena to watch him play piano. George played his own written music, solo piano, concerts, and he held performances at the Los Angeles Shrine Auditorium, as well as being featured in newspaper articles stating he was, quote, selected to play a piano concert at the L.A. Shrine Auditorium in honor of Bastille Day, unquote. 
Now, George Sr. and Esther were even able to commission the famous Russian architect, Alexander Zelenko, who specifically traveled to the U.S. to build their home in Northeast Los Angeles. They also had a separate, kind of smaller residence built on the property that was called Tea House. And George Sr. gave his son this house as a 15th birthday present. This, of course, made the papers as well. One article read, Boy's home is planned by Russian. Famous architect decided to remain in city after completing work. Zelenko, lifelong friend of M. and Madame G. Hodel, was invited to come to this country six months ago for this purpose, to build a worthy house for their son. The result is a most interesting structure comprising nine rooms and two oriental outdoor rooms. Terraced gardens lead up to the house, which is a last word model of modern efficiency, although outwardly having all the charm of the old Russian and Swiss architecture." Unquote. His IQ was tested to be one point below Albert Einstein's, so he quickly went through school and he actually graduated from South Pasadena High School in 1922 at the age of 15, earning the highest public school test scores of any student in the state. Based on that, he was to take part in one of the most famous psychological tests of that time. He was included in the, quote, genetic studies of genius, unquote. So it would appear that George had an idyllic childhood that most of us could only ever dream of. A very crazily famous composer, Rachmaninoff, traveled clear to his house to watch and listen to him play. A very famous architect was hired to build him his own house when he was a teenager. I mean, clearly his parents liked having him around. However, though he had a great education, it has been suggested that he was rejected by female classmates in high school as well as college. And his own son, Steve, stated that, quote, he was a victim of sexual abuse as a young boy by either his mother or a close relative, unquote, which might explain some things later on. So after high school, he enrolled at California Institute of Technology in Pasadena, which is a private research university. To give you some perspective, Caltech has been elected to the Association of American Universities and was the antecedent of NASA's Jet Propulsion Laboratory, which by the way, Caltech continues to manage and operate. He originally went to college to study chemical engineering. Then he began an affair with one of his professor's wives and she became pregnant. Baby girl Folly was born in 1926 when George was just 19 years old. Now it is said that he actually wanted to build a life with the baby and the mother, but the mother rejected him. She had moved away to the East Coast and said he was still basically a child himself and she ended their affair. 
He was utterly disappointed, completely shattered, talked a tale, and went back to California, where he was then expelled from Caltech, though the school was able to keep the sex scandal under wraps. After this, George went on a bit of a rebellious streak and apparently began drinking. Then, according to his son, Steve, he obtained a fake ID showing that he was, in fact, 21 years old. He then quickly got his chauffeur's license and got a job working for the Los Angeles Yellow Cab Company working nights. His son also says that George's real interest was crime reporting for the Los Angeles Record, which is a, or at least was, a hugely popular publication back then. You see, this was when prohibition was a thing. George rode along with policemen and walked right inside of houses that the cops had just busted into, and he wrote down what he saw which apparently was pimps, prostitutes, and johns. But this also got him in really well with judges, corrupt officials, as well as criminals. George became best friends with director John Huston. Now John's IMDB description reads, quote, an eccentric rebel of epic proportions, this Hollywood titan reigned supreme as director, screenwriter, and character actor in a career that endured over five decades. The 10-time Oscar-nominated legend, blah blah and so forth. Another close friend of George's was a lawyer named Kent Kane Parrott, who, quote, owned most of the officers on the Los Angeles Police Department, unquote. The friends would get together and act like young existential bohemians, as it was described, you know, smoking hash and opium in Chinatown. In a December 1925 article in the Los Angeles Evening Herald, drama critic Ted LeBerthan wrote about George Hodel. In his article titled The Clouded Past of a Poet, he described the young writer and editor as, quote, tall, olive-skinned, with wavy black hair and a strong, bold nose. His eyes are large, brown, somnolent. George drowned himself at times in an ocean of deep dreams. Only part of him seemed present. He would muse, standing before one in a black, flowered dressing gown lined with scarlet silk, oblivious to one's presence. Suddenly, though, his eyes would flare up like signal lights, and he would say, quote, The formless fastidiousness of perfumes in a 17th century boudoir is comparable to my mind in the presence of twilight. Unquote, unquote. This information was in his son Steve's book, Most Evil, so I guess it would be safe to say that George was eccentric, but you know, there's no harm in that. George dated young and beautiful women and settled down into what is called a common law marriage, meaning they never actually got married, with a woman named Amelia Lawson. They opened a bookstore in downtown LA for a while. Then George decided to be a radio show host for the Southern California Gas Company's Music Hour, and he played classical music. 
Amelia became pregnant, and after the birth of Duncan Hill Hodel, they moved to San Francisco. There, George enrolled at University of California, Berkeley, to become a doctor. He also had an affair with a woman named Dorothy, who was an art student and model, and together they had a baby girl named Tamar. They also apparently married, if only for a short while. So he's had three children by this point, and he was only in his 20s, all three with different mothers. Busy man. George Hodel graduated from Berkeley pre-med in June 1932 at 25 years old and then went on to the University of California, San Francisco to get his medical degree in June of 1936. Now, the year before he graduated from med school, his mother, who was then 62, died from tuberculosis in a sanitarium. But once graduated, George then did his residency slash internship at the San Francisco General Hospital. Once he completed that, he then got his first job as a doctor working for the New Mexico State Department of Public Health, taking care of the Hopi and Navajo reservations. And he also served as a surgeon at the Civilian Conservation Corps logging camp. A surgeon. Remember that. At some point, he and Dorothy divorced. George was, like I said, a well-known ladies' man. So while it's just a guess, I'm assuming he was already seeing his next wife while married to Dorothy. So at this point, George was running within the most affluent circles of Los Angeles. He became involved in the arts, falling in love with surrealism and the overall decadence all around the art scene. With some of his closer friends, he also shared an interest in sadomasochism. Now, sadomasochism, for those who might not be familiar, is the giving or receiving of pleasure from acts involving the recipient experiencing pain and or humiliation. They often get sexual gratification from performing the act. He and his friends often discuss the philosophies of the darker side of art while they partied and womanized. So in 1940, George went on to marry another woman named Dorothy, who was actually the ex-wife of his director friend. He nicknamed her Torero so that there would be no confusion between her and his former wife. He and Torero would go on to have four children together. Michael, then twins John and Steve, Steve being the son that's written the books. John, his twin, died when they were only a few weeks old. And then the last was George Kelvin, but they called him Kelvin. George also, interestingly, became the senior venereal disease control officer for Los Angeles County, as well as operating his own private practice specializing in treating STDs in downtown LA. The early to mid-1940s is remembered fondly by his son Steve, and he wrote about how he loved playing with his brothers and how he got to meet his father's famous friends. 
It was during this time that George bought the Souden House in 1945, and he continued to live in that Hollywood property until 1950. The Souden House was built in 1926 by Lloyd Wright, son of the famous architect Frank Lloyd Wright. It is now considered a historical landmark. I highly suggest you Google this house. Words do it no justice. It is absolutely stunning. Now, sources say that Dr. Hodel was actively practicing polygamy in this enormous house. So he had with him Torero, their surviving three sons. His first legal wife, Dorothy, was there also, supposedly living there with their daughter, Tamar, and sometimes his first real partner and common-law wife, Amelia, whom he had Duncan with, was there too. But at this point, Duncan was considered grown. And then George most likely had many other lovers come in and out the door at the same time. So guys, this is where I can go on with the rest of his life that is documented and provable. We know that he performed countless abortions, back alley, underground abortions, because they were highly illegal at the time. We know that he was paying off law enforcement to stay hush-hush about his illegal activities. We also know that his daughter, Tamar, in 1949, accused him of having an incestuous relationship with her when she was just 14 years old and even getting her pregnant. He tried to give her an abortion for whatever reason it didn't, quote, take, and so she got a second abortion from another doctor. Tamar also accused him of teaching her how to perform oral sex on him when she was much, much younger. There was a very public trial where three separate witnesses stating they had been present and witnessed the sex acts that he had done in full view of them with his own daughter. In fact, the harem of women that he kept were known to sunbathe in the nude, but one of the witnesses did recant and it is believed that she had been sort of threatened into silence. But George himself testified that he and his daughter, quote, have been studying the mysteries of sex and that, quote, these things must have happened. I need to talk to my psychiatrist, but I am afraid he will find something wrong with me, unquote. And yet somehow he was miraculously acquitted. Now that is bad enough, of course, of course. But it's also the other thing she accused her father of that I'm sure we're all here for. So now I'm going to get into what he is speculated to have done. George came under suspicion when his 27-year-old secretary and lover, Ruth Spaulding, died from an overdose of barbiturates in May of 1945. Immediately after that, we know that he did go to China, no doubt to try to escape any possible charges. So he became a chief regional medical officer in Hankow, China. He left his children behind with no backward glance. George Hodel was also the prime suspect in the murder of Elizabeth Short, aka the Black Dahlia. Now, the Black Dahlia is a whole other podcast, and if you Google her, 
you'll see that she was an attractive young lady with an attractive figure and what looked like gorgeous jet black hair. She was a person who mattered and who wanted to become an actress. She has a whole backstory that is important, but for the sake of time, let's hit the high notes. There were at least eight separate witnesses that stated that they knew George had been dating Elizabeth in 1946 after he returned from China. So in January 1947, the then 22-year-old Elizabeth was found dead in an empty lot very near a sidewalk by a mother pushing her child in a stroller. And this is where I'm going to give you my quote disclaimer disclaimer, okay? I'm going to get kind of into this. She was found naked and bisected, meaning cut in half. The cut through her torso had been so surgically precise and clean, cutting through the only two vertebrae where one could do so without hitting bone, according to George's son, Steve, who again was actually an LAPD detective, so he knew his stuff. Her skin was porcelain white from being drained completely of blood. She had been given a Glasgow smile, which means she had been cut from each side of her mouth up the sides of her face near her ears. She had deep lacerations on one of her thighs and both breasts. I think like the whole areola and nipple had been completely cut off of one and there were entire portions of flesh removed. Elizabeth had been posed carefully and precisely. Her arms were kind of seductively raised, her hands above her head, her face ever so slightly turned to look toward her left. Her bottom half had been placed what visually looks like to me about a foot to a foot and a half further down from her torso, but more to the left from her torso so that the two halves did not line up. Her legs were spread apart and stuffed under her bottom was her intestines. There were cuts and abrasions around her body. It also appeared that she had been um, anally raped as well, but again, there was no sperm because she had been cleaned. Namely, there were a bunch of cuts that had been done in this crisscross pattern all in her genital area and the hair in that area had been removed by hand. They determined her being cut in half had been done after she died. There was evidence that she had been tied down as she had rope marks on her wrists, ankles, and around her neck. It appeared she had been tortured over several days before she died, and yet her body had been carefully bathed there was no semen or any other evidence from anyone else present on her body. The coroner said that she had died from, quote, hemorrhage and shock due to concussion of the brain and lacerations of the face, unquote, meaning her Glasgow smile. There was also extensive bruising around her head and face, blunt force trauma. Now, by the time the police got there, the media had already arrived and were snapping tons of pictures, all of which can be found on the internet. She was later identified by her fingerprints because she had been arrested for drinking underage, 
though she had not been any kind of criminal. She wasn't a troublemaker. So five days after her body had been discovered, someone called the editor of the examiner claiming to be Elizabeth's murderer and for them to be expecting a package to arrive with her belongings. A few days after that, a manila envelope was found by a postal worker that was addressed to the Los Angeles Examiner and other LA papers with the words kind of cut and glued from newspaper cuttings stating, quote, here is Dahlia's belongings, letter to follow, unquote. Inside this manila envelope was Elizabeth's birth certificate, business cards, photographs, names written on slips of paper, and an address book with the name Mark Hansen on the cover, though Mark Hansen was completely cleared as a suspect. The package itself had been carefully cleaned with gasoline, which was also what had been used as a cleaning agent on Elizabeth's body. Long story short, it did not take long for George to be on their radar, but keep in mind, he had some of the LAPD in his pocket. But with the public outrage and horror, they knew they had to do something, and George became the prime suspect, but there were other suspects as well. They decided to tap his phone lines and got some pretty interesting information from him that way. He was heard saying, quote, Suppose and I did kill the Black Dahlia. They can't prove it now. They can't talk to my secretary anymore because she's dead. They thought there was something fishy. Anyway, now they may have figured it out. Killed her. Maybe I did kill my secretary. Unquote. By 1950, enough evidence had been gathered to charge Dr. Hodel with the murder of Elizabeth Short, when George suddenly left the country. His son Steve believes that he was tipped off by one of his bought and paid for police officers. George had, at this point, gotten his license to practice psychiatry, interesting enough, and he fled to Hawaii and get this, he was a counselor to prisoners there for three years before he then moved on to the Philippines. This dude, was counseling prisoners. But while in Hawaii, he met an upper-class Filipino woman named Hortensia, I hope I didn't butcher that, and they had four more children, Teresa, Diane, Ramon, and Mark. After moving to the Philippines, it is known that he made trips back and forth into the United States several times in those years, before always going back out of the country. This is where the theory that he was actually the Zodiac Killer came from. His son Steve has researched and dug with the experience and pull that a seasoned detective would have and thinks he has placed his father in that area during the murders. Samples of his father's handwriting do somewhat match the handwriting of the Zodiac not to mention the ciphers used have symbols that kind of mimic the Navajo tribes. And if you remember, Dr. Hodel was in New Mexico working as a doctor within those reservations. There are several very interesting parallels if you go down that rabbit hole. 
His son has also linked him to Chicago's lipstick killer in the late 40s and the and in Manila, the jigsaw murderer in 1967 as well. And there's just again so much information. I would recommend you go read Steve Hodel's books. He has all of the details there if you wish to dig that deep. Steve didn't see his father much at all after he left for Hawaii. He states his father would show up sporadically and have the boys meet him in a diner near the airport. They'd eat, they'd each get like five minutes to kind of catch their dad up with their life and what was going on, and then he was gone again. Steve has very few memories of George Sr., his grandfather, as well. He says what he does remember in the handful of times he was ever around his grandfather that he was kind and played with him and his brothers. George Hodel Sr. died in June of 1954 at 81 years old. Dr. Hodel himself, after settling in Asia, became a famous market researcher over there and was considered a respected social scientist with offices around Asia as well. Steve commented that during George's final years, he figured that he knew more about his father than most of his other full or half siblings, and that was just his dad's way, being secretive and quiet. George had always just been a very private man. George was 63. George and June finally moved back to San Francisco, and he and his wife remained incredibly close. In May of 1999, George Hill Hodel Jr. died at the age of 91, presumably from natural causes. His ashes were given to Steve with the instructions to have the ashes thrown near the Golden Gate Bridge. So Dr. Hodel is in the water. Now his son again has written several books on his father and how he is most likely linked to several murder cases and Steve is believable considering his life career. George was a privileged kid who went on to live a privileged life. He did earn his right to be a doctor and whether or not you agree with abortion, he was offering an underground service for frightened girls or just unprepared girls. He was a womanizer, he drank too much, which was common in his era for rich people. But he wore a lot of hats and he changed his hats. He was a doctor, then he went on to be a counselor. He was a cabbie. He wrote crime articles for newspapers. I mean, the man was a chameleon. In my own personal opinion, I do believe he did those things to his daughter and I think he is definitely a strong contender for being the murderer of Elizabeth Short. The surgical precision begs the idea that a medical professional with surgical experience would have had to have done it. So what do you think of this story? Leave me a comment on the YouTube channel or a DM on Instagram. You can always email me at SerialKillingInstagram, all one word, at gmail.com. And if you want to support future podcasts, you can visit my Patreon. Thanks, guys. I appreciate you. Have